Hey, Hill City, so glad that you are joining us this morning. We are still in our series, The Seven Letters, as we are going through the book of Revelation together. So today we're gonna start in chapter three, verse one, if you wanna read it with me. And this is to the church in Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you pray with me? God, we ask that you would help us to discern from this passage how it can apply to our lives. God, there was a specific word that you were giving to that church at that time, and yet I believe that it can be applicable to where we are today. And so God, you would you help us discern that with your Holy Spirit? And maybe we change by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Here we have another letter to another church. And this is one of the shorter messages, actually. It's probably the shortest to all of the churches. And yet it's to what's considered the largest church of the seven in the Asia Minor area. It probably had about 60,000 to 100,000 people and had a reputation of being a thriving church, lots of events, social gatherings. They had orderly worship. They had a lot of people regularly attending. They had sound doctrine. They were regularly celebrating with the sacraments. They had lots of committees. They were organizing things and events. It was even considered to probably be the wealthiest, so they had a lot of money to follow through with these events. And so to the other churches in this area, this church was doing it. They were doing the most. This was the example that everyone wanted to follow, everyone wanted to be. And yet, here we see Jesus giving the harshest word that he's given to any of the churches thus far. And he doesn't even start like he did some of the other ones. Remember Pastor Deshaun's sandwich uh, method where you kind of encourage and then you correct and then you encourage? No, not here. Jesus straight on says, I know you have this kind of reputation. However, you're dead. He says, you are dead, you are incomplete, and you had better wake up. How? How is that what Jesus sees when the other things that everyone else is talking about is completely different. They appear to be doing it right, and yet God saw something else. He says, I see through you. I see through the actions. I know what others are saying, but I know from this vantage point that inside you're actually hollow, you're empty. It's not real, it's not authentic. So why such harsh words then? to this church that appeared to have it all together. They obviously knew a lot of the right things to do, 
yet something was still missing. And so this is why Jesus comes right at the heart of the matter. He's not wasting any time talking about the things that they got right because he's like, hey, this is actually so important. We're just gonna get right to it. We're just gonna get right to the heart of it. So what was it then that they weren't quite getting it right? Maybe in all of their busyness that they weren't actually living for God, or they they weren't orienting their lives around God. They were just doing all of the things. They weren't really asking, okay, what is God's purpose? What are we to be doing to have God's kingdom be here and now? They were simply just going through the motions. Maybe they lost sight of why they were doing what they were doing. They just had been doing it so long and they knew they were supposed to, so they were just kind of checking off the boxes. Or maybe they had forgotten whom they were doing all of these things for. It's not so hard to imagine for us. I feel like we can even maybe just look at Christmas time. Christmas time is a time where there's energy, there's life, there's excitement, there's joy. And yet oftentimes, what's actually being celebrated has nothing to do with whom the day is really about. We can get so caught up in all of the other activities and events that we have forgotten whom we are supposed to be celebrating, whom we are supposed to be worshiping. So perhaps we're not that different from the church in Sardis where we can get so caught up in the daily rhythms and routines and parts of life that aren't necessarily bad, but are they missing something? Another shortcoming of the church could have been that despite all of their great programming, they had forgotten the call to the church, which was to spread the good news, to share the gospel. Some scholars believe that maybe what they were just doing was just for those who were a part of the church and they had missed that missional component of we are to go out, we are to make disciples, we are to proclaim why we are different, but maybe they had compartmentalized some of their life. Maybe they were the church in the building and they were doing all the things right, but then when they were outside the building, well, that that was different, right? Church is holy, church is sacred, but when we're out here, we can live a different life. So maybe what the people around them were seeing was no different than anybody else in culture. And so there was no distinction then There is no call to live differently, no call to become a disciple of Jesus. Another theologian offers this critique. He says, Lasardus was the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. That's a harsh critique. That unlike the other churches that we find in this time, they weren't facing persecution. And so it begs to ask the question, why? Why not? Is it perhaps that they had just become so silent on the injustice of the day, so silent of the moral compromises that it didn't matter. Why persecute that church? They were innocuous. They were deemed harmless, safe. They're not gonna do anything, so we don't need to even bother persecuting them. Some would even argue that that's kind of the plight we find ourselves today here in North America as the church, big C church, right? Is that the critique would be that we haven't, we have lost our effectiveness in evangelizing, in sharing the gospel because we've become so silent on the issues that matter. We've become 
just accustomed to the sins of our culture, of our time. And Jesus calls the church of Sardis dead. He says, you might look good, but you are not the real deal. You're not authentic and therefore you are not complete. I remember growing up, my grandmother, she always grew a lot of fruits and vegetables and had rose bushes. And so it was great growing up as a kid, you would go there and it was always exciting to see what did she have? What did she get from her garden? I did not get her greens though. I can't, I've killed herbs. Like I just, I'm not, I don't have it, but she was amazing. We had grapefruits and orange trees and raspberry bushes, mint. And so it was kind of the expectation when you went to grandma's house for a snack, she was gonna serve you something fresh, something delicious. Yet the irony was on her dining room table was the classic fruit bowl with the fake grapes and the fake apples and the fake oranges. I don't know if anybody else's grandma did that too. And I remember when I was little thinking like, oh, is that is that too, is that from the garden too? And then of course you reach out, you touch it because you're kind of like, wow, it's really shiny fruit, you know? And then you touch it and you realize, oh no, there's no life in this. This is dead. There's, there's literally, this never was alive and this couldn't feed me, couldn't sustain me. Perhaps that was the problem with the church is that it looked good, but when you actually got down to it, there was no life left in it. It wasn't able to sustain or nourish those who needed the message of the gospel around them. And we see that Jesus has this critique of the Pharisees, right? He tells them that they're whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside. They know all the things to say, all the things to do, the right times to do them, which, you know, what you're supposed to do for each day. But on the inside, they were just a bunch of old dead bones. And we don't want that for ourselves, but God tells us that the only way that we can make sure that our hearts and our actions go together, that they were a reflection of the same thing, is that we have to be connected to him. John 15, remember this is where Jesus says, I am the true vine, apart from me, you can do nothing. He says, remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. We can be busy, we can be active, we can go through all the motions, we can perform all the duties associated with the Christian life. We can even get a really good reputation doing it. But if we do this apart from intimacy with Jesus, apart from being connected with him, it's not an authentic life. And apart from him, apart from the vine cut off, we die. I was watching kind of like a PBS type show recently and it goes through like the history of different foods that they're going to use in like their cooking show. Anyhow, so I'm watching this episode about apple trees and they're talking about how in the wild, you can have lots of different varieties of apple trees. And so if you want a Granny Smith apple tree, you can't actually buy one from the store and then plant those seeds and expect the same Granny Smith apple to come from it which I 
had never heard of before. I thought it was like, you know, you see a potato and you go throw it outside and it starts sprouting and now you're potatoes. Apparently, with the apple trees and apparently a lot of fruit-bearing trees, the way their seeds are is if you plant those seeds into the ground, they need something else to kind of like fertilize and and turn it into a fruit-bearing tree. And so it will pull from the different plants and this is like the cross-pollination stuff you learn in elementary school that I still only mostly understand. But so you'll get a derivative of a Granny Smith. You'll get something that's from that family line, but it has now been cross-pollinated with other varieties around it. So it's actually its own kind. It's a new tree. And literally when I'm watching this, I was fascinated by this because I said the only way to make sure you get that same exact variety is you have to graft it in to the original Granny Smith tree that you're starting from. Again, I'm not a huge gardener. I didn't even fully understand what that meant, but my mind took me back to this passage. I felt like the Holy Spirit reminded me, oh, this is that same idea. I can do all the right things. I can say all the right things, but I may not produce a disciple of Jesus if I'm not careful about it. If I myself am not rooted into Jesus himself. It might be similar, it might have some of its heritage, you know, but it's not gonna be exactly the same, but rather we are supposed to graft each and every one of us back into Jesus himself if that is who we are supposed to be coming like. Not other versions of ourselves, not even better versions of ourselves. I feel like this happens a lot right now. There, there's almost this attitude of like scripture is supposed to help us be our best version. And I don't think it is. I think it's supposed to help us be a holy people, a people called and set aside to God, a people that look more like Jesus. That should be our desire and our calling, not just to be better versions of ourselves. And I think sometimes that might even be why we have a hard time approaching the scriptures, approaching prayer time with God, because we're expecting us to kind of just look like a cleaned up version of ourselves, right? Like the Instagram version of ourselves. We've all seen it. You got the beautiful kitchen. It's like, oh, Instagram worthy versus real life. Here's the messy dishes, the homework, etc. It's like we expect scripture and God just to do that. Give us a pretty version. Give us the one that looks good on the outside that man says is outwardly pleasing. And God says, no, that's not what I'm about. I'm actually about transforming you all together that you would look completely different and not like anyone else around you, but like my son, Jesus, that we would be directly grafted into him and look more like him and bear his fruit. This is the call we see to the church. This is the call that I believe is for us today. What the church of Sardis needed, what we need is an authentic life made complete through the Holy Spirit. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, we lose our authenticity. We settle for being safe and comfortable. And like the disciples in Sardis, we become unable to distinguish the peace of well-being and the peace of death. So then how do we stay alive? Jesus would not have commanded anything if death was not, if death was the final word. So all is not lost, okay? Because 
of grace, we can begin again. Grace says it's not too late. And he gives the church of Sardis five commands. And I think these are five things that we can take to heart to our lives today. The first one is this, if you're taking notes, wake up, wake up. Jesus says this twice, verse two and verse three, and he is telling the church, get up, get on your feet and start being watchful again. He says, stay vigilant. Don't get to this place where you get so safe and comfortable that you're kind of not even paying attention to what's happening, but rather there's this exhortation of watchfulness. And that would have carried a special weight for the church at this time because the city of Sardis twice had instances where they were taken over by someone else. And it had nothing to do with like military might. It had everything to do with them not being watchful. There was one occasion where someone climbed up the crevice because this was a city that was built on a mountain. So it seemed impenetrable. But this guy climbs up, he hides in the crevice, and he's actually um, able to uh, sorry, looking up here. He claw, he climbs up on the walls and no one notices. Then another time, a few hundred years later, some men, about 15 of them, sneak inside the city and then open up the fortress from within. So again, it just became a lack of them staying watchful. It came that they were a little too comfortable and were no longer vigilant that things started to creep in and led to their downfall. And so Jesus is trying to remind us, hey, there is an enemy who is seeking to destroy us from within. So wake up, be watchful. We see him say this over and over in the gospels. In Matthew, he says, stay alert. Don't let the lamps burn out. In Luke, he says, blessed are the servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. So wake up. Number two, he says to strengthen what remains. So if we're talking a lot about, okay, the church is dead, and you might be wondering, well, what remains then? So the routines, the disciplines, all of these structures, the rhythms that the church had, those weren't the issue. Remember, even with the Pharisees, those weren't the issues that doing things that we see in scripture that tells us to do, Bible readings, prayer times, those aren't the problem, but rather it's that we need to strengthen them to do what they were intended to do, to bring us closer to Jesus, to lead us to Jesus himself, to attach us to him and root us in his life. It's when we start doing these things just for the sake of doing them that they lose their power and effectiveness in our life. So we wanna focus then on what, what are these disciplines and movements in our own lives, perhaps we can maybe even have a time where we kind of maybe just almost bring everything to a halt so we can really evaluate what are the things that I'm doing? Why am I doing them? Are they bringing me closer to God or further away from God? What actions then are bringing us closer to Him? What are bringing us more in line with His purpose for our lives? And then those are the things that we are to strengthen. Number three, Jesus tells them, remember what you have received. Simply put, the meaning here is keep on remembering. Keep on remembering. Do not forget. We see this a lot of times. And Jesus is telling them 
to remember the good news that they received, that they heard, that they accepted with faith, and also remember what they had received, the Holy Spirit. We see this language throughout Scripture. A lot of times we'll see received is directly in association with the Holy Spirit. It talks about it in the upper room when they received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, which today happens to be Pentecost Sunday. Not a coincidence, I think, but also we did not plan it that way. Um, so remember, Pentecost Sunday is just a day when we're remembering the outpouring of the Spirit on the disciples in the upper room for the, the purpose of them going and being able to evangelize. And so we're remembering the Holy Spirit today being poured out long ago. And, and what, did, what did Peter say? He says, repent and be baptized. Receive the Holy Spirit. Later on, we see Paul asking the church in Ephesus, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So Jesus calls the church of Sardis to remember the essential reality of our Christian life, the very life of God who indwelled in the body of Christ is the very same God who now indwells with us. This word indwells means to permanently be present. We permanently have the very presence of God within us the same way that Jesus did, we now have that. Our human selves have become a holy sanctuary for the living God. That should blow us all away, that God would choose to dwell in us and give us life and give us power. It's an interesting way that Jesus introduces himself in this passage of scripture because he says, uh, the words of him who have who has the seven spirits of God. And this is very similar to in the beginning of Revelation chapter one, where he he says, Grace and peace to you from, from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits. So again, there's that phrase again. Now this may seem strange, and at first glance you might be thinking, so God has more than one spirit. But the reference of seven is to the number because it has meant to signify, especially in this book, perfection, completion, fullness, uh, full reality. And so another way of saying this is the real spirit of God in all of his fullness and grace. This is who is giving the message. This is who we have access to. And when we look at that word spirit in Hebrew and in Greek, it can be translated as wind or breath. It's, it's a descriptive term that's meant to, for us to imagine it's active, it's living, it's moving, it's not static. And so when, when we're thinking of God in these terms, it helps us to remember that we serve a living God. God will not be just left in the past. I think sometimes... We think of God as creator and we think of God in the beginning and we kind of leave him there. But God isn't just the God who was, he's the God who is and is to come. He's alive and fully present in this moment. And as such, he wants to have a relationship with us that is fully active and alive, working in our midst. The very 
spirit who breathes on dry bones and makes them come alive. That is what we are to remember. That is what we have received. Number four, Jesus says to keep it. So basically, keep on keeping it. Hold on. Do not let go of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, which you just received. But keep responding to the Holy Spirit, to his leading, to his guiding. Jesus is reminding the church in Sardis, this can't be just a one and done thing. You can't just open yourselves up once to the Holy Spirit and then leave it at that. But no, this is meant to be a daily practice, a daily being filled up, as Paul puts it. It's something that I pray over my kids every night, that they would be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and that they would follow his leading and his guiding. Because it's something that we need daily to grab a hold of. Daily we need to grab hold of this, or rather, we need to allow ourselves to be grabbed by the Holy Spirit each and every day, wherever he's leading us. Number five, repent. Jesus says, stop, turn around. You know what you should be doing. So this is a call to change, to go away from any sin and to change our hearts. And Jesus says, do it now. There's that imagery of, let's do this before I come like a thief in the night. So it's not to scare us, but it is to be, urgent. It is to say, hey, don't wait around, but do this now. Change your ways that you may be found complete. Because we see the promise then for us is that he will confess our names before the Father. We want to be found being alive, authentic, and complete, don't we? Being the church that confesses him as Lord and embraces him intimately as Father. God is not just an object that we put up on the shelves for Christmas time, but he is a person that we are to have a relationship with. He is an active living being, and he promises to give us strength and power when we seek him daily. So we want to be found embracing him. We want to be found exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, right? The love, the joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, generosity, self-control. We want to be found in unity as the body of Christ, remembering that we belong to Jesus and to each other. We want to show compassion for the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized. We want to be found with a life that has growth where we are making disciples. And we want to be found with a desire to be holy like Jesus, not just better versions of ourselves. How do we do any of that without the help of the Holy Spirit? I know I can't, and Jesus clearly says none of us can. We can't do any of this on our own. We cannot leave the way Jesus calls us to without the help of his Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus says, come to me. Receive from me the life-giving Holy Spirit of God. And it is the spirit in us that makes us alive. So before we go today, I just have a few questions that I kind of wanted you to consider. The first one being, what place does Jesus occupy in my life? How does Jesus occupy my thoughts, my feelings, my dreams, my, my planning, my spending? What kind of place does the risen Jesus the crucified and now resurrected 
exalted Jesus, what kind of place does he actually have in my life? The second question would be, when was the last time I shared Jesus with someone else, with someone who did not know him yet? And the last question, if Jesus were to take his spirit away from you, would it make any difference? Would anyone around you notice? Would you notice? Are you actually operating independently of God? Or do you heavily rely on his spirit? Church, may we walk with him, not ahead or behind, and obey his spirit, not culture, not our own wants and desires. May we be a people who are alive and complete, full of his Holy Spirit, and may we follow his leading and guiding every day of our lives. Amen, church. Have a great week. See you soon.